Would you pray with me? We are in Malachi, the end of the Old Testament portion of the Thread series, and I just got to say, I am simultaneously so excited to look at the life of Jesus and consider the implications of his life and ministry in the New Testament last week, but also at the same time, man, I have been hit every single week by the words of the Old Testament, by God's word, and I've been encouraged and provoked and shaped and convicted and... That's going to continue, I think, I pray. So would you guys join with me in prayer? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have in these moments to pause and take all of the things that are distracting us right now in this moment and lay them at your feet so that we can hear from you. God, you know that people need to hear from you more than they need to hear, with, hear from me, and so I just pray that your spirit would do that through me or in spite of me, but that, that you would do that, that we would see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Jesus, and our hearts would be filled with worship. So God, would you do that in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Anybody in the room like watching Marvel movies? Care, care to uh, admit it? Okay, I love some of the Marvel movies, and I, I thought it was just brilliant with the lead-up to Infinity War and Avengers Endgame and that whole series. It was great. And my favorite movie during that was a blend of, like, hilarious, and yet it moves the story forward, and it's all of these big things. And Okay, I'm a nerd. I get it. It's all right. So imagine my delight when I heard there was another Thor movie coming out called Love and Thunder. I thought, awesome, this is going to be great. Has anybody seen Thor Love and Thunder? It's terrible. It's awful. Like, I, the buildup was like to the point where Liz actually went to the movie theater with me to watch it. And if you know anything about her taste in movies, she was being a great wife. <laughs> and we went, and it was just bad. I mean, what a letdown. It felt like a bunch of half-baked Saturday Night Live sketches that were crammed together in a fairly incoherent movie aimed to get cheap laughs and like push woke agenda down my throat. I mean, the anticipation followed by the letdown. It was terrible. But now, it's one thing for us to have an experience like that at the movies or for the Vikings fans in the room at a sporting <laughs> event, right? We know that feeling really well, the feeling of letdown and disillusionment, and that's not what I expected. But what if that disappointment... What if that disillusionment spills over into real life? Like, what, what happens if it, if it happens around things that actually matter? Or what happens, even worse, when you feel like God's let you down? Or as people have let you down? Some of you guys in the room know exactly what that feeling is like, and it's not funny. Imagine being the people of God coming back from the exile. You think, you hope, you dream. Is it over? Is it done? Is God going to reestablish his kingdom now? Is, have we been punished enough for our disobedience to the covenant? Will God restore our prosperity and bring his kingdom? But then the reality of coming back is one letdown after another. From Zerubbabel and Joshua to Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've looked at those stories, they're these brief glimpses of hope. A new temple is built. A, a city wall is finished. A, a mini revival happens under Ezra when the law is read and people are broken and weep in tears and tears and they celebrate the Passover and they recommit themselves that it's going to be different moving forward. And it just doesn't last. 
By the end of the book of Nehemiah, where there was a, this was an incredible revival that took place, the people fall back into the same sin. They start oppressing one another again and committing the same things that led them to exile in the first place. It's into this window of human history that God raises up the final prophet in the Old Testament, a man named Malachi. Here's a quick intro video of the prophet Malachi and what's covered in the book. The book of Malachi was written by the prophet Malachi sometime between 440 and 400 BC. Malachi directs his message to the Israelites who had lived in Jerusalem after the city was rebuilt. Upon return from exile, the people are motivated to live righteously and see God's covenant promises fulfilled. But this new generation proves to be just as wayward and corrupt as their ancestors. The priests of Israel offer unfit sacrifices of blemished animals. Husbands begin leaving their wives for other women, and generosity among the people withers, causing the temple to fall into ruin. On top of their disobedience, the Israelites accuse God of abandonment and indifference toward the injustice taking place in Jerusalem. God responds with a promise to send a messenger, a new Elijah that will boldly announce God's kingdom. Further, God reminds the people of the value of the scriptures. They allow any generation to look back and tangibly see God's faithfulness throughout history, instilling trust in their hearts as they await the promised Messiah. During the time of Malachi, it's a back-and-forth uh, prophecy between God declaring something and the people questioning God. We see God's love for his people is doubted by his people. They question him for the injustice that continues to go on. The temple is neglected. Generosity is withheld from common, or by the common people. The priests start offering sacrifices of the most blemished and worst possible animals. Men are leaving their wives and marrying foreign women, and yet despite of all of this, there are some people in their midst that are still faithful to God. And at the end of Malachi chapter 3, God, before he ends the Old Testament, has a message for these few that still fear his name and that are faithful to him. It reads in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more shall you see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. No matter how bad things are, there are always some who remain faithful to God. And here in a, in a book that's primarily about judgment, but then future promised hope, God acknowledges and says, I see you. And I will record your deeds. I will write them down in a book so that no one will forget your faithfulness. And then the final words of the Old Testament come to us in Malachi chapter 4. Uh, it includes a warning to the wicked, a command to remember the law, and a promise of future restoration. So would you read with me Malachi chapter 4? It's only six verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. There's that name again, the Lord of heaven's army that was so common in the, in the post-exile writers. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go, up, go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So once again, the prophet speaks of the future day of the Lord, a day that will be both terrible and it will be glorious, depending on what side of God's judgment you are on. See, verse 1 and verse 3 offer a warning to the arrogant, to the evildoers, that this day will be a day that is terrible. The language used is vivid. It's awful. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. They'll be completely wiped out. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. They won't have descendants. God says through Malachi, a day is coming when evil and evildoers will be judged. And the judgment will be like the purging that comes with the flames of fire. They will be tread down like ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous, says verse, verse 3, on the day when the Lord of heaven's armies acts. This is not a pleasant picture, is it? For those who continue to perpetuate evil, for the arrogant, it is a warning that God's judgment one day will fall. And it's meant to warn them who are arrogant and evil to turn from their ways and turn back to God. But it's also meant as an encouragement to the people who have been victims of their arrogance and of their evil that God sees and he will not let the guilty go unpunished. But for those who fear the name of the Lord, in verse 2, we see that this fire, this sun, will be very different. But those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What a bunch of metaphors all jumbled together. It'll be like the rising sun, the sunrise that brings warmth and healing like healing in, in certain wings, like a, like a bird kind of covers their young and, and cares for them. And your joy will be like calves leaping from the stall and frolicking in a field. Now, I could try to describe the scene for you, or I could show it to you. This is the Snug Valley Farm filming calves that have been let out of the stall in the spring for the first time ever. Do you think they're having a good time? Look at that. Whew. God says through Malachi, those who fear the name of the Lord will have joy that looks like that. Like that. Notice here that the holiness of God, pictured as a rising sun and pictured as fire, has two very different uses. The holiness that warms and encourages and heals the righteousness, but then also consumes the wicked. What beautiful imagery that is. What an incredible promise. It speaks to the disillusionment in our soul and their soul and causes them to be stirred to look to the future in hope. But it also warns them to pursue the Lord, to fear His name, to hallow Him as holy, and in verse 4, to consider or remember His words. You see, the Old Testament ends with a command 
to remember and a promise. The the reminder in verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. This seems like it fits, right? Remember the law that Moses gave you, the commandments of the Lord. Remember to not simply think about them, but to call them to mind in such a way where you do them. Remember the covenant that you made as my people to obey me and that my blessing would be poured out on you. Remember my commandments and invitation for you to reflect my character to the nations and to enter into a life that is truly living. But if we know anything about the Old Testament story, there's a problem with just saying, yeah, just do the law. What's the problem? They haven't at all. Like over and over and over again, the people have failed to keep the law. While Moses is getting the law, what are the people doing? They're making a golden calf and bowing down to an idol right after they heard that's not what they're supposed to do. As they sit outside the land of promise in Numbers 14 and 15, they doubt that God who crushed Egypt and preserved them in the wilderness and gave them miraculous food now can actually deliver them into the land so that they can fight off the scary guys. And so they're doomed to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, grumbling and ultimately dying until a new generation rises up. And they go in under Joshua to take possession of the land, and God delivers it for them, but they don't do it completely. And only one generation, Joshua's generation, fears the Lord. And then there's this downward spiral of the time of the judges, where time and time again they they fall into enemy hands because God allows them to be judged because of their disobedience. They cry out for a deliverer. God raises up a judge. And he delivers them. And as long as that judge is alive, they go, things go well. But the, the minute that judge dies, things go horribly wrong again. And over and over and over again. So that we think by the time the kings come along, maybe it'll be different when they have a king. And the time of the kings is an utterly disappointing time as well. Where if there's a good and godly king, things go well. But if there's an ungodly king, things go horribly. And so the kingdom is divided into two after Solomon. The northern kingdom of Israel, which was eventually wiped out in 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom of Judah, which was wiped out in 586 B.C. Even though God calls the prophets to to call them back to repentance and to covenant faithfulness, sometimes in Judah... For a little bit they had a good king and things went well, but most of the time it was an abject failure, so God's judgment finally falls. He sends them into exile. But in the midst of this being sent, he promises, I am not done with you. In fact, in the future, I will come and relate to you in a new way. We looked at Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel. God promises that he will give them new hearts with his law written on him. He will pour out his spirit on them, not just the leaders, but all people, so that they can actually live out of this new heart with new desires, where God's law is an internal reality rather than an external reality. But their lived experience upon coming back was none of this at all. Even after rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, it didn't work. And it felt like a whole bunch of disillusionment and disappointment. Because God's law didn't work that way. They couldn't keep it. They needed a Savior, and in many ways, guys, that's one of the points of the Old Testament. They needed God to work and move decisively on their hearts. They needed God's Spirit to empower them. And so here in verse 4, it's a reminder 
of what is needed, but what, is, but what they failed to do. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. But they got to be thinking, okay, we can do that, but who are we kidding? And so it's also accompanied with a promise. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, the law of Moses is good. It's an invitation to the good life that God created, but they don't keep it. They can't keep it. They need a Savior to come, a different kind of prophet, in the wisdom and the power of Elijah, but somehow some, someone so much more. And so the Old Testament closes with that promise. A somewhat cryptic promise that Elijah will come. And how are they to recognize him? That he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their father. Now as we jump ahead to the New Testament and the time of Jesus we see that Elijah the prophet is mentioned in a, mu- a bunch of different places to the point where it's kind of confusing. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel goes to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, this is what he says about the miraculous son that's about to be born to his wife Elizabeth. Verse 16, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does that ring any bells? We just read it. The the last page of the Old Testament ended with that, and the very first thing that Gabriel announces is now. This child's going to be that. So angel Gabriel is attributing this specific promise from Malachi to John the baptizer who will prepare the way for Messiah, one even greater, one even greater than Elijah, if you will, to come. But then it gets a little weird sometimes in the rest of the New Testament. In John chapter 1, when the religious leaders are, are kind of pushing back against John, they explicitly ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no, which kind of makes that confusing, doesn't it? Because it says that He is the Elijah who was to come. John simply claims to be one in that moment crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord, not Elijah. Maybe John is just being very literal here. No, I'm not Elijah, but I come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, to make it even more confusing or to clarify it, we'll see. In Matthew 17, Elijah actually comes and shows up in the pages of the New Testament. On the Mount of Transfiguration, that moment where Jesus' glory is seen, like his humanity is pulled back for a few brief moments, and we're able to see him as he truly is. Peter and James and John are there, and all of a sudden Jesus, in this glorified state, is talking to Elijah and talking to Moses. And many Bible scholars are like, that was his way of saying the law and the prophets are pointing ahead to him, but literally he's talking to Elijah and Moses. Now, how did they recognize him? I'm not exactly sure. But Elijah came, and so his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are trying to make sense of it. It's like, well, is that the Elijah to come that we only got to see, but no one else got to see? And so they go go up to Jesus, and they kind of express to him their confusion. In verse 10, this is what he says. The disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So even John, 
Even though John tells people that he's not Elijah, Jesus tells us explicitly that the prophecy about Elijah in Malachi is about John the baptizer, his cousin. So what in the world is going on here? Who's Elijah? Is it John the Baptist? Is it Elijah himself? Is it Jesus? Yes. In a sense, they all are. Because they all have the Spirit of God and speak with the prophetic power of Elijah and the rest of the prophets. And yet now Jesus claims to be the one greater than Elijah that even Elijah pointed to. The one that those with the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist included, simply pointed ahead to a voice that turns the heart of their fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Make sense? Yes, not really. So Elijah points ahead to a greater Elijah whose name is Jesus. John the Baptist comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, thus fulfilling this role, but still pointing ahead to a greater Elijah who was to come, a greater prophet. His name is Jesus, and oh, he's more than a prophet. So even more, this is how the Old Testament ends, with a command to remember the law of Moses and a promise that one who is coming will be greater. And then it ends. And so the people of the Old Testament are left with a question. What should we do? How should we respond? When will Elijah come and what should we be doing in the meantime? Well, you're to remember the words of the law and you're to live in hope. Do you know how long they waited? 400 years. Just to give you a little perspective on that, 400 years ago, the pilgrims were coming over on the Mayflower and just establishing the Plymouth Rock Colony. Our country, the United States of America, is not even 250 years old itself. That's a long time to not hear from God. That's a long time to not be able to hear a prophetic voice or an angelic visitation or something from God saying, I still see you. I'm still committed to my plans and purposes. Now, we have the benefit of looking back on the, on the laid-out picture of, of Scripture and history, and we know that those 400 years will come to an end, broken by a baby's cry is what our Christmas carol says, right? Where God actually comes into the world. But they didn't know that. All they were left with was God's silence, which isn't in action, but often feels that way, doesn't it? And those who have walked through periods of silence from God, you know better than to say that God is inactive, but it's hard, and it's disappointing, and it's disillusioning. Now, as we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, you need to know that the world that Jesus walked into is so different than the world of Malachi. It's just one page in my Bible, and probably yours as well. And yet 400 years of human history happen where the people of God are crying out to him. They're waiting, they're longing, and they're met with silence. Let me just take a minute to fill in the gaps of what happened in those 400 years. The Old Testament closes with the Persian Empire still in control of the region of Israel and Galilee. And while not rosy, the Persians were actually quite pleasant to live under. As long as you paid your taxes, they were pretty fine with other religions and other cultures and let them worship in peace. But in the 330s BC, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire kind of was consolidated and came and wiped out the Persians. 
In 10 years, this guy solidified his rule in Macedonia and then conquered all of the known world. And then at age 32, he dies suddenly, leaving this massive empire, one bigger than any of the world had known before, and no heir that can really take, take it and rule it. And so that empire, the Greek empire, was divided into four different kingdoms because of his four main generals. You don't have to know all of them, but the two that are kind of helpful in understanding biblical history is the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria. The Ptolemies in Egypt, early on, uh, when, when those generals were co consolidating power, kind of exercised their dominion over Israel and the Jewish people. But later on, it became the Seleucid Empire, whose capital city was Ant uh, Antioch. You've heard of that before, right? that kind of rose in prominence. Now, the thing about the Greek empire is that they were far less tolerant of other peoples and other cultures and other religions than the Persians were before. To try to keep reign on this massive empire, they kind of had this long campaign called Hellenization that tried to make everybody culturally and religiously Greek. See, not only were they only supposed to speak in Greek, and their language was kind of universally accepted across, but they tried to make people worship the Greek pantheon of gods and suppress the other cultures of the world. Now, how do you think that went with the Jews? How do you think they received that particular message? Not very good, because they know that we are to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And so there was a real creep that existed in the Seleucid Empire, and, and this thing all kind of came to a head under the reign of Antiochus IV Epiphany. I see some of you guys' eyes are glossing over. Hang with me, I'm almost done. All right? You get to learn about where Hanukkah came from. You're welcome. All right. During the reign of Antiochus IV, there was kind of this tension on the outside with Rome emerging as a world power and basically threatening him but saying, hey, you can pay us off and we won't come smash you. And then internally, there was fractions and civil wars. And so he doubled down on this Hellenization. He doubled down on Greek culture. And he actually took his army to the city of Jerusalem and he stripped the temple of all of its gold and its, and its finery and used it to pay off Rome. And then he actually brought in pagan idol worship to the temple of Jerusalem. And so in the place where Yahweh was to be pursued and worshiped and sacrificed to, he sacrifices a pig to Zeus. Now that is the most insulting thing that you could possibly do to a Jewish person. The most unclean animal in their eyes being sacrificed to a pagan deity in Yahweh's temple. This led to a revolt under a guy by the name of Matthias, who was a priest, an older guy, who basically said, I'm not doing it. And he killed the, the, the compromising priest with him and the, and the Greek soldier that was saying, you got to do this. And he fled with his five sons and essentially launched a rebellion or, where they had this, these guerrilla warfare tactics. And, and one of his sons was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee. Judas Maccabee means the hammer, okay? That's a sweet nickname, right? And they actually had a little bit of success in repelling the Romans. And this is actually the time or the events where, where the events of Hanukkah are celebrated. But about three years to the day after Antiochus IV sacrificed a pig in the altar, on the altar in the temple of God, Judas rides in on a horse to the waving of palm branches and the shouts of Hosanna. Have we seen that before in the Bible? And actually, for about a period of 80 years, the Jewish people had relative independence. Now, it wasn't rosy by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but it became the Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, Judas's older brother, a guy by the name of Simeon, became the first king. And even though that an initial family was devout, the ones who came after that were just really slick politicians. 
and kind of compromisers. They would accommodate and kind of posture themselves so that they stayed in power even though they weren't really very faithful to Yahweh. This all happened until about 63 BC when Pompey the Great, the Roman general, kind of marched through, wiped them out, and Rome was the new show in town. Okay? Under Rome, rather than simply imposing a, guard, a, a governor, the Romans kind of had an ad, advantageous opportunity, and they kept the Hasmonean king, who wasn't a descendant of David, in power, and they kind of served as part Jews, part Roman authorities, and the f- most famous of those is actually a guy named Herod the Great. You've heard of him before? He ruled and reigned during a time of, uh, of Jesus' birth, and he had a whole bunch of sons named Herod and Herod and Herod, because prob- the dude was so paranoid he killed a few of them. I guess he needed to <laughs> have a Herod around or something, and we see all these Herods popping up. In the- That's the Hasmonean dynasty. Now, why in the world did I give you all of that history? What's the point? Because I lost a third of you. The people of God, the Jewish people, were an oppressed people. They had suffered 400 years of oppression. They had returned from exile, but in many ways they were still in exile. And even though they were oppressed and crushed, they lived with a sense of hope. Hope that Elijah and one greater than Elijah would come, Messiah, to set them free, to lift their burden, and to kick out the Romans. See, the Romans were brutal. They crushed all opposition, and they taxed the snot out of the people that they ruled over They tolerated the Jews so long as they stayed in line and paid their taxes, which absolutely crippled them. So, how were the people of God to remember the law of Moses but also live in hope? How would they do this? There was kind of four branches or four philosophies that ruled the day. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Pharisees, we see Jesus constantly conflicting with. They were the religious conservatives of the day that thought strict adherence to the law of Moses and strict separation from the Gentiles was the way to please God so that he would send Messiah to deliver them. The Sadducees were kind of the Hasmoneans and the ruling class. They were the religious liberals of their day, so to speak, that had made all these compromises in the worship and the pursuit of Yahweh. They didn't really value all of his words. They kind of took away the supernatural elements of God, but The trade-off was they got political power. The priestly class came from that, and the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, but really the uh, the Sadducees were in control. They weren't as zealous as the other three branches because they were the ones in power, and they often sought to work through Rome that eventually the Messiah would come. The third group was the Essenes. They were the ones that just completely withdrew from culture. They're like, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The only way that God will send his Messiah is if we get away from pagan culture. And they kind of started their own communes. Uh, You might have heard of some of them with the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was an Essene community, most likely. They kind of withdrew from culture. They punted on that, and they, they thought the Messiah would come to them, and that that would be the start of a revolt to free the people. The zealots were the religious terrorists of the day. They were the ones who embraced violence and political overthrow, and so they sought to like stab Romans whenever they got a chance, or those who were on the side of Rome like tax collectors. And then there was the common people, who most of them weren't part of any of these four ideologies, and they just tried to live godly lives and live them in hope that Messiah would come and set them free. But what they wanted to be set free from was Rome, They wanted their freedom. They wanted to be able to thrive and flourish once again as the people of God. And so Jesus comes into that world and he doesn't fit any of their categories. Just like he doesn't fit any of ours today. 
He both affirms and subverts all of the different political parties or, or ways of, of, of longing for Messiah. He's like, yeah, like that, but not like that. And he comes and he begins to preach about a different kingdom. The rule and the reign of God breaking in, but not in a political way, in a way that is in the hearts of his people. And in many ways, Jesus is showing the power of God to reverse the effects of sin as the, the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and the, and, the, and the mute speak and the dead are raised and good news is preached to the poor and liberty is proclaimed. And yet it's not as expansive as they'd hoped or they wanted or they longed for. It's important for you to know, and we're going to see this over and over again, that Jesus didn't fit into the categories of his day, nor does he fit into the categories, artificial categories that we've created in our day. He and his kingdom rule are subversive like that. He subverts them and gives us something so much greater, demanding more but giving more to. He comes and he brings the rule and the reign of God, but then he suffers and he dies as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sin. His greatest victory is seen in what seems like his greatest loss, and he ushers in a new kingdom that flips power and authority on its head. And over the next 300 years, you're going to see that they actually take down the Roman Empire without a battle being fought. Not by winning or being elevated to all the positions of power but by losing their life for the sake of others, by serving, by weakness, and the Roman Empire, the strongest empire in the history of the world, begins to crumble. It's only when those things are melded in the 300s or so that things actually kind of go haywire a little bit. But if you're here this morning, why this history lesson? Because I want you to see that the story of human history is your story and it's my story. And at di different times throughout human history, we feel like, this is it? This is God's promise? I was expecting more. I mean, the people of God must have thought, once we finish the temple, it'll be okay. Or once we get the wall up, it'll be okay. Or once we get our act together and start living obediently to the law, it will be okay. Or even Jesus' disciples after the resurrection are saying, is it time to restore your kingdom to Israel? Are we going to get the Romans now? And Jesus is like, it's not going to be like that. But you will have power poured out on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Or maybe you, you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You've believed the good news of the gospel, received God's forgiveness. You read about what the church, the people of God are supposed to be with grand dreams and hopes. And then you get here and you're like, this is it? I mean, no offense, but that's it? I know I feel that way sometimes. What do we do with that? What do we do with this profound sense of disillusionment? and God's seeming silence and lack of action. What do we do when we pray and we pray and we pray and God doesn't answer our prayer the way that we think he should or the way that we want him to? If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you, you've seen enough. You know that God is real. You've experienced his love. You know that he can and he does move and he does intervene in human history sometime. But sometimes that even fuels your discouragement and your disillusion that he doesn't always. As you see his, if you, as you hear a silence and continue to see injustice, maybe a lack of physical healing that you pray for, 
or a church that seems to lack power. So what do we do? We do what Jesus' disciples did. We learn from him. We allow him to shatter our preconceived categories of what he ought to do and who he ought to be. We take the posture of a learner and we allow him to give us new categories. We step back and we look at the scope and the story of the Bible and of human history and realize that this story that God is working out is actually our story. And we're in the midst of Act 5 and we know the end, but we don't know the details of what's going to happen moving forward. And so by faith and trust in him, because we've seen too much not to, we allow him to rewrite and guide our stories. Guys, silence is hard. Disillusionment is brutal. But know this, brothers and sisters. That is not the final word. That's not the end of the story. Do you know what it is? I'm going to read it for you. It's found in Revelation chapter 21, and I'll close with this picture of what the end is. And you wonder, Kyle, why all this history lesson? Why did we spend all this time? It's so that you would know that this is your story and that the way that you make understand meaning and challenge and disappointment and purpose in your current life is to connect it to the broader story of what God is doing. We don't know it all, but we do know this in the end. Then I saw heaven a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth has disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. And we, along with the church, the saints, for the last couple thousand years, say amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, it's hard to make sense of our individual stories, but we trust you. Lord, we know that you are moving things forward in human history in ways that are profound and amazing and awesome. And God, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know the end, and it'll be really, really good. And so, God, would you help us today to live with a sense of hope, not disappointment? Hope and faith, not disillusionment. And love, not cynicism. God, we know that we're not all that we should be or all that we even want to be. But by your grace, we also know we're not what we were. And so, God, complete your work in us and we pray with the saints, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha come. In Jesus' name, amen.